Dzen. That's uh, that's a trailer from the series The Chosen. That uh, season four, I think, is uh, is about underway. Uh, very shortly, if it hasn't started already, and uh, it uh, gives you a sense of what Jesus was dealing with in his final days as he made his way back to Jerusalem facing what he knew would be his crucifixion. And, I, and just that little trailer gives you a sense of the heaviness, I think, that he was beginning to feel, the weight of it all. He'd been three years out teaching, doing miracles, experiencing incredible things uh, of God's work in his life. And, uh, and then uh, as he gets down toward the end, we see that things are beginning to feel different for Jesus. Noel mentioned the heaviness that we've all been feeling. Things around us are weighing upon us. I think uh, it seems to me, this is just my impression, that since COVID, there's kind of been a steady decline in, a, in an overall sense of well-being. You, you can't give five minutes to the news without feeling a pull of negativity. And it's like something crashes into your, your capsule of uh, contrived or worked up comfort and hope. You know, we work hard to feel good and positive and in control and hunky-dory. And then, boom, this stuff hits us. And, man, it just dents us up pretty good. And that's the kind of foreboding, a sense of foreboding that Jesus felt for his disciples. And I think for himself. And he tried to prepare them as he was making his way toward the cross. And he passed through Gethsemane. If you know the story, you know that Jesus met with his disciples at the Passover. And then he went out into the garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But uh, we're continuing today in our series and prayer, and we're going to talk about his Gethsemane's prayers and the power of lament. Lament. Try to capture the Son of Man. Jesus always referred to himself as the Son of Man. That's very important. He did not come down boasting that he was the king of kings and lord of lords. He did not go out of his way to establish his credential as the second person of the Trinity. He always referred to himself in discussion with his friends and the people that were listening to him. He referred to himself as the son of man. That's very important to understand. There's a reason for that which we'll get to. But he felt concern for his disciples in these last days, and you can kind of get a sense of how he was feeling. We read in John 16, he says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogues, 
In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering service to God. They will do such things because they've not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. It was kind of like, I knew this was going to happen, but for now, let's enjoy what's happening now. But he says, now I'm telling you. And he concludes in that chapter, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Now, I want you to get that statement that he made. I have overcome the world. Clearly, Jesus did not have any fear of failure. He had no insecurity about who he was. And yet, he felt the pressure and the weight of the hour that they were in. He felt the burden and the heaviness of what they were facing. He felt concerned for how his followers were going to make out in his soon absence. Well, let's quickly review some of these things that was on his mind. In, in John chapter 11, we read the story of uh, Jesus getting the word that uh, his friend Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha, was ill. And there was a call sent to him, could you come, miracle worker, and take care of Lazarus? And it tells us in the scripture that Jesus didn't go right away. He held back and he delayed. And then he said, now it's time to go. And uh, we read in John 11:32 and following, I don't have a, a slide for this, but... Uh, he said, uh, well, a little more background detail. So he showed up in Bethany where they lived and a couple days after the Lazarus had died, four days actually, and Mary, I mean Martha, ran out to greet him and say, oh, I wish she could have been here. And then Mary, who'd stayed back at home, she got the word that he was there and she ran out too. And they had a conversation with Jesus. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You let me down. You should have been here. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. He was moved. It gripped his heart. In spirit, and troubled, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. 
Come see, Lord, they replied. And the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Sit with that for just a moment. He's there. He knows what he's going to do in a minute. But he enters right into their grief. They're weeping. He's weeping. They're standing in the midst of stark humanity and the stuff we deal with in life. And he takes it in on himself and he feels it with them. This isn't a charade. This isn't, it isn't a happy little God story. This is the Son of Man entering into the very heart of people he cared for and loves, sorrow and pain. These were not fake tears. He felt it. And the Jews said, see how he loved him? <laughs> what an observation. He loved Lazarus. But some of them said, well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? There's always the critics, always the cynics, aren't there? And Jesus, once more, deeply moved, deeply moved, came to the tomb. And the rest of the story, you know that he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus did come out. That was something that was working in his heart at that moment in these last final days before Gethsemane. It says after that he withdrew to another little village close by to get away from the crowd, but they had set their sights upon getting to Jerusalem by Passover. And so they headed to pass Passover. He knew the path before him was going to be tortuous. You know, he stood at the grave and he said to Mary, he, Mary, Mary said, well, I know that there's resurrection. Jesus said, Lazarus will come back. Well, I know there's resurrection in the last day. And Jesus said, well, I'm the resurrection and the life. So Jesus had resurrection on his mind. Whose resurrection? Lazarus, of course, but his own. Well, what do you have to do to be resurrected? You have to die. So as he stood and wept at Lazarus' tomb, weeping with them, feeling their pain, he, thinking and knowing that resurrection was out ahead for him, that he was also going to have to die. And so they withdrew, and then finally it came time to head to Jerusalem. In this time frame, if you read it in the Gospels, you find out that Jesus engaged his disciples in quite an in-depth conversation about what's ahead. He tried to prepare them, and he, he, he laid it out clearly. He said, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be nailed to a cross. I'm going to be executed. And uh, it, uh, they, they didn't get it. 
Let's be honest, they just didn't get it. Now, he had taught about taking up your cross and following him way, way back in the beginning. He talked about, anyone comes after me, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And they, they took that like so many of us do. Well, it's a simple little object lesson. I mean, they were familiar with crucifixion, but, but now he's saying, here, here. They walked the two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem, and they had to walk through the Roman stronghold where Pilate had his castle, where the um, high priests and the religious authorities that took care of things in the temple compound were in power, people that he had butted heads with and that were plotting to kill him. And they had to walk through the killing fields of the Roman Empire and all of the crosses and the sufferers on the crosses whose cries echoed through the countryside. That's what Jesus walked through. And it says there was a great crowd that followed him because of that miracle of raising Lazarus. Pretty incredible thing. And they followed him into the city and a, and a, and a crowd reaction began to happen and pretty soon what we call the triumphal entry. And Jesus got a donkey colt and got on it and he rode into the city and the crowd got all worked up and Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they waved the palm branches and threw their garments out. Quite a scene. And Jesus broke up the party. He got to the temple and he saw what was going on there. And he went from this celebratory, triumphal scene. He switched from this deep sorrow to this anger. Kind of a activist fervor took a hold of him. And it tells us that he went and fashioned a whip made of cords. And he charged into the temple area where they had the animal pens for sacrifice and they had the money changers. Why did Jesus get upset about those money changers? Why did he go into that and chase those money changers out of there and spook those cows and sheep away from there? Here's why he yelled out, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? For all nations but you've made it a den of robbers. He ran headlong into the corruption and the money-making schemes of what was going on in the temple area. You see, Passover was a time that people, Jewish people and, and uh, uh, proselytes that had come in to Judaism came on pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year, if they could. And it was a high holy day for the people. And these guys had set up a racket that you, in order to make a sacrifice here at our temple, you're going to have to buy one of our animals. Because these are the only ones approved for sacrifice. They have the government steel stamp on them. These are the only ones you can use. And in order to use those animals, you're going to have to buy them from us. 
And in order to buy them from us, you're going to have to use our money. Well, they, many of them, most of them were poor people, scraped together what little bit they could even to make the journey. They came from far and wide. You read in Acts chapter 2, you see that there were people from all over the Mediterranean region uh, and beyond that made pilgrimage to Jerusalem at this season. And they had to take whatever little local currencies they had and buy temple currency for a price, for a fee. If you've ever traveled to a, a, another country, you know you have to change your currency to the local currency. Well, they had temple currency. You had to buy temple currency. It was a racket. It was a ripoff. And it was especially hard for outsiders. Local people could work around it. But the people that came in with other currencies, they couldn't. They had to play the game. And it just ticked Jesus off. And I think we can just say that. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all, all the nations. What are you doing here? Okay, so this is another thing that's stacking up on Jesus' heart in this final time that he's there. The plot to kill him was underway after all this. They've been discussing it, but now they formalized it. We've got to get him. We've got to stop him. They said, if we don't stop him, they will come and take our place. The Romans, who are really in charge here, they're occupying us. We have our little thing we're doing under their authority with their approval. If we don't stop Jesus, they will come and take our place. Do you see the, the craving for power and control? People that want to hang on to power and control will do incredible things to hold on to it. Politics, somebody said. Yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. Well, we see some of that going on in our world today, don't we? A little bit. Jesus walked right into that buzzsaw. They'll come and take our place. Jesus knew that was going on, so that was weighing on him. I mean, he had the grand picture of him dying for the sins of the world. But now it's getting down to the details, the nitty-gritty. And he felt that. And then, then um, after that, we read that uh, he talked to his disciples some more. They had a little conversation about the temple, and Jesus walked away from the temple. And it says that Jesus looked out over the temple and he began to lament. And he said this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Don't you love that maternal picture of Jesus, the hen gathering the chicks under her wings, protecting them? together under her wings and you're, you weren't willing you wouldn't, you wouldn't come I wanted to hold you and embrace you and comfort you but you wouldn't come and see Jesus in the spirit could see what was coming see your house is left for you desolate 
For I tell you, you'll not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That crushed Jesus. He could foresee what was going to happen in about 40 years from then. Israel, Jesus' Israel was occupied by a brutal oppressor that would not only execute him on a cross, but eventually level Jerusalem. The Roman general, they occupied Jerusalem for three or four years, just surrounded it, cut it off. The Roman legions were all around. They also had a delegate down around Masada. If you know anything about Masada, some of the zealots had escaped to Masada. And Jerusalem was under siege. You couldn't come and go freely. They cut off supplies. The historian Josephus says that in that period of time, approximately two million Jews died. Jesus, when he wept over Jerusalem, he foresaw that's what's coming. The Roman emperor, or the Roman general, took the Roman standard and stood it right on where the altar had been in the temple and declared Caesar is Lord. Jesus felt that. He hated that that was going to happen. He didn't want it to happen. But it was going to. And so then they went to the Passover. And you know the story how Jesus got down on the floor with a towel and washed their feet. At a time when he was just hours away from a resurrection. Here he is down on the floor washing the feet of his disciples. Teaching them that this is the way it works in my kingdom. My kingdom isn't about domination and power and shame and strife. My kingdom is about humility and service and being a blessing to others. He knew that Peter was going to fizzle out. He said, Peter, <laughs> you're going to deny me before the night's over. Peter, I will not. These other guys might, but I won't. Peter did. He knew that Judas had already gotten paid to betray him. He washed Peter's feet. He washed Judas's feet. He then broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you as they entered into the Passover, the Seder. And he said, this is my body. Remember this, as often as you eat this bread and this cup, this cup is a new covenant that's going to come about through my shed blood. Drink this when, after, from now on in remembrance of me. That all was on Jesus' mind. And they left the Passover and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's what happened. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Don't miss that language. Greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, 
My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. If it were possible, here we find Jesus, the Son of Man, looking for an out, looking for another possibility. He wasn't doing this for show. This is what he felt. Philippians tells us that he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Jesus became, he left aside his former glory, humbled himself to become a human being, even to the point of death. And that's what he's feeling right here, and he's looking for a way out. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. I don't know, but Jesus is almost kind of patronizing his father here. I mean, Daddy, you, you can do anything. Um, couldn't we find another option here? Another possibility? I don't think Jesus was playing games. I think that's really what he felt. I don't think this was just an object lesson for us to read about 2,000 years later. Jesus was feeling it all. He said, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Okay, so he said, your will. Okay, your will. What about those guys? I've got to go back and check those guys. He's pulled, he's torn. He says, and then he says, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Sometimes we read that to Jesus was telling his disciples, come on, guys, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. I think he was talking about all of them. <coughs> We're dealing with some real stuff here, guys. I'm dealing with it too. Watch and pray. Come on, get some strength. Buck up here. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. He, didn't, he wasn't at peace yet. It wasn't settled yet. He went back. Possibilities, Father? Any other way? Can we do this different? Nevertheless, not thy will but yours be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, back to the guys. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let's go. Jesus knew he was in the front line of spiritual war between his humanity and his divinity. He was in a tug of war internally. There were two wills in operation here. Not my will, but your will. You ever felt like that? <laughs> sure we do. They had succumbed to the flesh. They had checked out. 
We do that sometimes. Things get just rough and don't make sense and we're tired and worn down and we just, we just check out. The flesh is weak. Through the intense, distressing, troubling, sorrowful, physically agonizing. Luke's version of this story says that he bled, his sweat dropped like great drops of blood. Well, if you know anything about anatomy, you know that when you break out in a sweat, it might be a sign of, <laughs> of cardiac issues and of extreme high blood pressure. Jesus was in an intense struggle for his very soul, his very being. But he came down to not my will, but your will be done. And the eternal plan of salvation and redemption through Jesus Christ had to come down to and through this passageway of lament. Jesus couldn't get to the place where on the cross he could, in the midst of his agony and suffering, look down and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do had he not gone through this gateway of lament. And now it begins to make sense when Jesus said to his disciples three years earlier, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. He wasn't necessarily saying they were all going to have to be literally nailed to crosses. He was saying that followers of his were going to have to go through the same thing he went through to yield his will to the Father's will. Denying self. The prophet Isaiah had said of Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He had to go through the most extreme rejection any of us have ever felt. Pastor Brent, a few years ago, speaked a sermon on this and borrowed some of his notes. He quotes N.T. Wright. He says, lament is what happens when people ask why and don't get an answer. He also said, lament is not our final prayer. It is a prayer in the meantime. It is where our heart sits raw with God while we wait for a remedy. And we find hope and gratitude in the assurance of his ultimate solution. That's the space Jesus was in as he collapsed on the ground in Gethsemane, in deepest, deepest lament. Our lamenting gets a little more complicated when we've developed the mistaken notion that God is a designer God, therefore our satisfaction and happiness. So much of our Americanized Christianity is based upon a belief system that spins the Bible to our benefit. We quote the scriptures that work for us or say what we want to hear. 
We used to have it in our, in our, when I was a kid, we had on the kitchen table a little thing they called a promise box. Anybody ever hear of a promise box? Had little cards with scripture quotes in them. And they all were little happy little promises from the Bible to make you feel good about today. Well, there's nothing wrong with getting encouragement from the scriptures. We certainly need that. But that's not the whole story. To die to self, we have to go through lament. We can't get there any other way. Jesus couldn't accomplish his salvation mission without going through lament as the Son of Man. Let me give you a little example of how this works. A great scripture in the, in the Bible is Psalm 44. Here's, here's something where we can really hang our hats on, all right? Psalm 44. We've heard with our ears, I don't have it on the slide, just listen carefully. We've heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what you did in their days. In days long ago, with your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. It was not by your sword, it was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You're my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. Whew. I'm for that, aren't you? Amen. Boy, that makes me feel good. That's what God wants for me. That's the plan for my life. But wait. The psalm continues. But now you've rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with your armies. You make us retreat before the enemy. And our adversaries have plundered us. And I know some of you Bible scholars are thinking, well, yeah, but, you know, Israel denied God and, and uh, wor worshipped idols, and, you know, they got punished for that. Pay attention. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You've made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, and the people shake their heads at us. My disgrace is before me all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who's been on revenge. All this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals and covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and opposition? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. See, you can't just quote half of that to get the whole picture. We have to understand that the journey in this life is a process of us bringing our will into submission and surrender to God's will. And we don't get there on willpower and good intentions alone. We have to go through the gateway of lament where we fully surrender our expectations, our designer definitions of what God's supposed to be. We have to humble ourselves. The psalm says in another place, a broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. Well, if he's not despising us, what's he doing? He's cheering us on. He's loving us. He's, re- he's waiting for the day when he can say, well done. Now, we need to get this. Paul quoted that psalm in his letter to the Romans when he addressed the struggle we've been walking in the spirit we've been, we have, I'm sorry, the struggle we have between walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh. Or the way I put it is, when we have an imagined relationship with the designer God who we think is obligated to our convenience, comfort, and expectations. Here's what Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? There is trouble. Shall hardship? Anybody have hardship? Or persecution? I hear a lot of Christians are feeling persecuted right now. Or famine? Hunger? Poverty? Nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? As it is written, here's the quote from the psalm, For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Just like the psalmist came around to God's love, your everlasting love. Paul works it back around. Yeah, we go through some crappy stuff in life. All of us do. Nobody gets out of here without going through this stuff. You can whistle while you work and twiddle-dee all you want. Try to escape it, hide it, stuff it, whatever you do, you're not getting out of here without going through some of this stuff. Paul wrote these as the words of one who knew very well what it meant to be caught in that liminal space. Got some good friends here with me today. Dr. John Dilley and beautiful wife Jennifer. She's also highly educated in psychology. And John and I had a conversation earlier this week 
and he mentioned the word liminal. Liminal means in between, caught between. Liminal space is where we live. It's the same thing as flesh warring against the spirit. We're not going to get out of this liminal space without going through lament, which actually is the same root, has the same root as liminal. Lament and liminal have the same root word. Paul spoke of it in Corinthians as, as, the, mean, as the meanwhile. He said, meanwhile, we groan. Quoting again from Pastor, lament is an expression of faith because to love and care means there's a risk that opens you up to a broken heart. If you don't love anything, if you're cynical and calloused, you won't lament. And where cynicism moves us away from God, lament pulls us toward God. That's where God rushes to us in our lament. Jesus' lament equipped and inspired him to say, Father, forgive them. Paul's lament through his hard struggles of life, if you know his story, unbelievable what that man had to go through. Brought him to the place where he said in 2 Corinthians, I've discovered that God's strength is perfected in my weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. When our lamentation moves us toward God, that becomes that breakthrough moment when these words from Hebrews 4 really begin to make sense. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, let's just, what does that mean, Jesus, the Son of God who ascended into heaven? It means he went through life. He went through the journey. He went through the lamentation. He passed on into the next dimension through his lamentations. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Oh, you mean Jesus knows how I feel? Yeah, that's what it means. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Every way. You've never had a crisis, a trial, a temptation, a problem, an issue in your life that Jesus in some way hasn't felt and knows what it feels like. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We have a religion that teaches us that we're nothing but worms. Just dirty sinners. And we should be ashamed of ourselves. And we feel condemnation. That's not what Jesus is telling us here. He's saying, because I know what you feel and I know what you're going through. You come on. You come on. There is no condemnation here. I don't condemn you. I welcome you. I embrace you. I give you my hug. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace and help us in the time of need. 
I see I'm running out of time, so I'll just wrap it up here. I want to share from this. If you haven't got one of these, they're in a basket out there. They're little prayer guides for our prayer series. Listen to this prayer. Oh God, gather me now to be with you as you are with me. Soothe my tiredness. Quiet my fretfulness. Curb my aimlessness. Relieve my compulsiveness. Let me be easy for a moment. Oh Lord, release me from the fears and guilts which grip me so tightly, from the expectations and opinions which I so tightly grip, that I may be open to receiving what you give, to risk something genuinely new, to learn something refreshingly different. Oh God, gather me to be with you as you are with me. And I would add, as a hen gathers her chicks and pulls them in.